when I woke up this morning, I thought, looked out the window and I thought, my word, it's going to be a small crowd today. But it's not. Well done for getting here. I think if I wasn't on the payroll, it would have been a 50-50 bet. So you've done well. I, um, I have the sense of God saying something to me for the benefit of someone else once in a while. And I, I've learned that it's good to share these things because you never quite know when, when it could be really helpful. But I have to say, listening to that prayer, Jan, that really rung true for me. That there was a lot in that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's extraordinary how you can look at something or hear something many, many times and you pick it up again or you listen to it and you see or you hear something new. And I've had that experience. And it's from the passage I'm preaching about today, Matthew 28, which I have sat with many, many times these last 40 years or so. And I thought I'd read the whole thing. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. There were a lot of Marys. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. While they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. This comes to the governor's ears. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Commonly known as the Great Commission. 
to make disciples of everyone for the glory of God. It's mother's milk if you're a navigator, as I understand many of you were, or like me, you were in student life at university, youth for Christ, any other evangelistic group, whether in church or without. But the thing I'd always missed is this thing. There's actually two commissions mentioned in this passage. The other commission is that given to the soldiers who were guarding the tomb. They were to say that Jesus was not resurrected, but his body was stolen while they were asleep at their posts. How they could testify to what happened while they were asleep is not explained. So for the Jewish faith since then, Jesus is regarded as a charlatan, one of many false prophets or messiahs who have come down the ages. Apparently his father is a Roman soldier named Pantera. So he is Jesus ben Pantera, Jesus son of Pantera. And that was the anti-commission that started. And it continues, not just within Judaism, but across the range of world religions. Now there's quite good evidence now, I think, that Islam has at least some roots in the early Christian heresy of Ebionitism, which was the view that Jesus was a man, a very good man, a man used by God, but not the son of the God. That idea has been picked up. Islam still teaches that Jesus, or Asa, I think as they call him, was a prophet, but he wasn't resurrected because he wasn't crucified. Judas, apparently, was on the cross instead. Very clear to them that he is not their Lord and he is not their God. For Buddhists and liberal Christians, Jesus was a great teacher, perhaps one of the best. But no more than that. For Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, he was a created being. Not the creator became flesh that we worship this morning. For Hindus, Jesus was another expression of everything that is God, just as you and I and the trees outside are divine. Everything is God. It's called pantheism. If they worship him as a God, it's a God with a little g. There are many gods of little g's. Those of you who are cricket tragics will remember Sachin Tendulkar from a few years ago, stunning Indian cricketer. He's got his own cult following where people go and they worship him. Now, I think he's stunning, don't get me wrong. Amazing cricketer, but I'm not bowing down to him. And to them, well, the resurrection is just another story. Similarly, pagans typically worship spirits and their ancestors, so Jesus, if he is anything to them, is a good man. An example of a pagan people with a pre-European Maori. Another, ironically enough, would be the modern Pakia who worship, many of whom worship money and their own success. Therefore, the Great Commission is actually an invitation to conflict with the anti-commission, with the powers of our world, who, whatever or whoever they may be. Now, it's not to say that other religions are totally bad, because they're clearly not, but it's to recognise that in becoming disciples, we move from one kingdom to another, because you can't serve 
Jesus and Allah. You can't serve Jesus and Krishna or Jesus and your ancestral spirits. Jesus' claim to be our Lord and our God is not accepted or acceptable to most people alive today or most people have ever lived. Curiously, non-Christian people often recognise this conflict better than Christian people do. I'm told that in India, if a young man goes to a Christian church a few times, no one's in the least bit worried about that. But if he comes home and says, Mum, Dad, I've been baptised as a Christian, he's probably going to have to find himself a new place to live and a new bunch of people to call family. And if you're in a Muslim community, well, the reaction could be even stronger than that against him and the people who have led him to faith. I went to a Christian church in Indonesia a few years ago that my old church, Island Baptist, supported. And out the front they had this plaque. And the plaque repeated everything that was on their consent that they got from the civic, society, civic authorities to build a church. And they hoped that it would give an arsonist pause to think before they torched the place. They're still there. And also shortly after they opened up their church, a mosque opened up right next door. Hadn't been there previously. The anti-commission was on their doorstep. Our version of the anti-commission is around us, but it's, it's a bit subtler than that. I think we need to pray for and support our missionaries because they are entering spiritual conflict. They need our help and they need our encouragement. We need to know they matter to us. That out of sight is not out of mind. And it's the same thing for us. When we start making some real inroads in this community, things will get very quick, very tricky very quickly, I feel sure. It's not something to be major on, but it's just something for us to be aware of. Jesus' mission is an invitation into conflict. Well, I want you to look again at the Great Commission, verses 18, of 20, 18 to 20. The task of making disciples is bookended by two great promises of Jesus. First of all, that all authority has been given to him. So he's way beyond being just a good man or a teacher or a prophet. And then the second bookend is that he will always be with us as his great commission is outworked. Now I talked a few weeks ago about how the mission of God to save a people to God's self has been running since creation and won't stop until final judgment. This is Jesus' mission. As he has all authority, we are the Johnnies and Jills come lately who are his junior partners. He's with us by his spirit. That is how we experience Jesus today. Technically, if you say that Jesus lives in my heart, well, no, Jesus' spirit lives in our heart. It's the spirit that indwells us.
In many places, New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. But what is the Spirit up to? How is he working that great commission out? Well, to research the question, I spent some time reading the leading one-volume Christian theology text around at the moment. The author Wayne Grudem is at pains to be scrupulously orthodox and biblical. No dodgy Steve Taylor, Rod Robson, waffly stuff here. It's all straight down the line. And Grudem's starting point is that the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. And he identifies four broad types of work, clearly not a Baptist, should be three, four broad types of work that the Holy Spirit is up to. First of all, Spirit equips us, individual Christians, for service. Now in the Old Testament, it was just judges and kings, but now he gives us gifts that we can serve all of, he gives all of us gifts that we can serve each other more effectively, whether it's teaching, caring, helping, whatever. So gifts. Second, the Spirit purifies that which is not pure. In other words, you and me. We are sanctified as we are live, live out our Christian lives. We are made clean. And the sign of this process is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and all that. Third, he reveals his truth to people that Jesus is Lord and how we should live in light of that truth. So this encompasses prophecy, teaching, conviction of sin, guidance and direction, and the assurance that we are his. Really important. And lastly, he unifies us. He brings us together. He created the church community, described in Acts, and every other church, including this one, will find its unity in the Spirit. Good, solid stuff. That is helpful to understand what the Spirit is doing within God's people. But he's always talking about what the Spirit is doing within God's people, not in the wider world. And I think the problem is, is how we do theology. We tend to gather up all the sort of verses about the Spirit and try to create a sort of a jigsaw puzzle in which everything fits together. But one of the problems of doing that, and I don't know if you've ever had this problem with jigsaws, is there's always this little pile of pieces left over that don't fit neatly anywhere. And so we just ignore them. Consider these examples of stray jigsaw pieces from the Scriptures. The book of Hebrews recounts the story of when Abraham met Melchizedek, the pagan king of Salem, and paid him a tithe. Melchizedek is described in Hebrews as a priest of the Most High God, and Jesus' high priestly office is said to be in the same order. Now there's much that's unclear about this story, but what is clear is that while the Spirit was active outside of Abraham's family, which was the people of God at that stage, sanctifying this pagan king. Second, the Magi who visited and worshipped young Jesus were wise men, probably astrologers, who received the revelation that a king of the Jews had been born, a king worthy of the, their worship. Now, this story would have been quite shocking to its original Jewish hearers. 
because they were taught from cradle to grave to stay well away from astrology or any of the other occultic arts. But God revealed his truth to those three magi through the occult. And thirdly, Jesus is encountered with a Syrophoenician woman who begged him to exorcise her demon-possessed daughter. She was Syrophoenician. She was clearly not within the people of God within the Jewish community. But Jesus praises her persistent faith. And then later, Peter encounters the Roman Cornelius in Acts 10. And it's very clear that the Spirit has been working in this pagan man. The Spirit was equipping these people and active in their lives before Jesus or Peter were on the scene. And there are others. Job, Rahab, Ruth from the Old Testament. And then there's Christian experience. How many of you have read Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts? Oh, you need to read this. It's in the library. It recounts numerous stories from the mission field of the Spirit revealing truth to people groups before the missionaries with the gospel showed up. The classic example, and it bears repeating because it's stunning, it happened in Papua New Guinea. Many of the people there, when they first heard the gospel story, for them, Judas was the hero because they really rated clever betrayal. They thought that was just the touch of genius. Which was a bit frustrating for the initial missionaries, as you can imagine. But as they listened more to the stories of the people, they discovered in their folklore the tradition of the peace child. Which was when two villages had been at war with each other, and one got to the point of wanting to make peace. And what they would do is they would put their son or one of their children, on a canoe and push it out to the other village. And the, and the boy or the girl would live there. And this was the peace child. Now, to betray a peace child was an absolute no-no. And obvious parallels to me with the father and son from our story. In that book, there are numerous similar examples of the spirit working in cultures which had never heard the gospel. And the spirits there lay in little time bombs like the peace child tradition. New Zealand poet James K. Baxter put it very well in his poem Song of the Holy Spirit. He said this, Lord Holy Spirit, you blow like the wind in a thousand paddocks, inside and outside the fences. You blow where you wish to blow. We can't limit God's Spirit. It's my belief that both Scripture and experience teach us that our God is not contained within these four walls, within this community of people, or within our fears. He loves the world, and so he's engaged in it. John 3.16 says, memorably, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. He loves the teeming, smelly, noisy, broken whole of it. It's quite a statement when you think about it. 
Well, what does all this mean? Well, I think we need to be trying to discern what God is doing in our church, among us, in our workplaces, places, and in our community that we live in. I suggest that the church's mission is to discern what God's Spirit is doing and then get behind it. Whatever he's doing, we should grab onto his coattails and just hang on for the ride. Jesus' bookend, that second one there, means that he's already there before us, before we got there, wherever there is. And that was what the discussions that we had in 2016 about transforming Opawa were about. Discerning what God was saying to us and what he's doing in and around us. And we're going to resume those conversations in September and come back to it. But in the um, current Transforming Opawa document, the hardest one that we have struggled with is this. Building bridges into our world to bring God's love to those who don't yet know by God by equipping and encouraging each other for mission in our homes, neighbourhoods, schools and workplaces. The people we rub shoulders with and it's the reason that we've commissioned Doug today to lead us and equip us in that department. Now it's not just us. The Baptist Missionary Society has been going through a similar process of thinking about who they are and what they're about. And they've rebranded themselves as Aratahi. It's picked up the Maori Ministries ball that the collective Baptists, us, has dropped several times over the years and now supports people like Sean Delaney that we saw in that clip earlier. Because the church's role, people of God's role, is to serve God from all places to all places, overseas and right here. And it's a mistake, I think, to limit the Great Commission to those like Kim who go out. Most of the people who this, the vast majority of people whose this commission was given to probably never left the five-mile square they were born in. But it's still their commission and it's still ours. Please support Aratahi as you are able and be open to where Doug may lead us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to just tag along, to be your junior partner. We thank you for your love for the people of North India, Bangladesh, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, New Zealand and Waltham. Help us to be good partners, either by financial support, prayer, building relationships or hopefully all of the above. Lord, empower us, we pray in your name. Amen. Invite the musicians to come.